We've been looking forward to this for a few days now. Set it up earlier this week. We were talking about her. Now we'll talk with her. Uh, Shannon Martinez. You, you have perhaps heard her story about it. has been making the media rounds of late. A big piece in the AJC. Much of that up on our website at WGAURadio.com. Has talked with some other media folks. Basically telling her story. A fascinating story it is. I, I'll summarize it with the headline here. Uh, Anton's mom used to be a skinhead. I mean, that's basically what it comes down to. A white supremacist, a fascinating story, I'm sure. How'd you get into that lifestyle? How'd you get out of it? What are you doing now? Well, what you're doing now, uh, before we get into that, is raising seven kids. Uh, ages ranging from 20 months to 20 years, these kids. Shannon Martinez, thanks for coming in this morning. Thank you so much for having me. I have made note of that. I and mean, listeners have heard me say this before. Never mind your life. Just that this part of it is so fascinating to me. We had one. And just the logistical issues that come with one, uh, getting him from school and getting into baseball. My wife works, I work, and trying to juggle the schedule to incorporate one kid. And let's multiply that by seven. I, I have no idea how people do that. I don't even know how I do it. <laughs> <laughs> On paper, our life should not work. Like, I look at my bank account and I'm like, I don't know how all the bills are getting paid, yeah. but somehow they are. They shouldn't be. <laughs> well, that's the other part. Seven is seven times more expensive than one, and one is plenty expensive enough. Uh, where are you from? This life that we're going to talk about, where did that happen? Um, I, um, I was born in Massachusetts, but uh, we moved when I was like six months old, so I have hmm. no recollection of that. And then we moved to um, the... New Jersey side of uh, essentially Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. Um, Cherry Hill is the closest Mm -hmm. uh, place that anybody's ever heard of of where I live there. And then when I was 11, uh, we moved to uh, rural Michigan, just north of Toledo, Ohio. Okay, All three of those things have one thing in common. They're all up north. I thought all the white supremacists were down here. I'm going to find out that's not true. I think that that's probably not true. I know that that's not true at all. Um, The most virulent uh, racism that I and and uh, very on the surface racism that I ever experienced was actually in the Midwest. Hmm. All right, Shannon Martinez. I'll get to the story now because I I, I can't wait to to get into this and, and start picking it apart and, and and letting you explain to us how this happened. The first part of it, the first thing I would say is this: is that if I passed you on the street, you'd look normal. You look like anyone else, and I'm sure that's now what you want your life to be. You don't want to be that person Except who's for those seven up. kids yeah, dangling and, and That part of it, yeah. You got your entourage with you, but besides that, I mean, that's a long way from where you were. I was listening to your accounts of how, how this started, and oddly enough, there was music involved, the punk rock music scene. What, what yes. happened there? Um, when I grew up uh, in New Jersey, we um, ever, almost everyone in, in America has seen Stranger Things at this point, and um, that was really close to how I grew up, like minus all the like supernatural stuff going That's on. It's a TV show, and I'm the one person in America who hasn't seen it, but I, I know. Okay. Well, it's, it's, you know, like all the kids are riding their bikes around their neighborhood. At one point, somebody has like somebody in their house, and the mom doesn't even know that, the, <laughs> that you know, because our parents, they were there, mm-hmm. but we were almost like feral children. We would, you know, <laughs> yeah. I, like there's a story that I, I left, um, my mom was like scrubbing the floor and she came to the playroom to look for me. I was four years old and she couldn't find me. And I had walked up to the, the swimming pool that was seven houses away. And when she got up there, I was on the high dive with like an Indian headdress on <laughs> <laughs> and going off, going yeah. off the diving board. And, um, and so like, it, it, and it wasn't it wasn't 
it was like benign neglect. Mm-hmm. Like it was not, it, yeah. it wasn't like we were like. There were no helicopter parents in those days. At least it was, yours were. It was the antithesis yeah. of yeah. the helicopter parents. Mm-hmm. And so there's, there, some of that plays into it because I think a lot of people growing up in my generation felt disconnected from their parents. And there's all this stuff going on where like the roles of particularly women inside families is really changing in the late 70s, early 80s. And it's like they got married in the late 60s where it was like your job is to be a wife and a mom and to make your home really nice and then suddenly it's like oh and there's also this expectation now that you have a job and that you do these other things and so they were negotiating waters that hadn't yet really been negotiated and I think the children really bore some of the brunt of that in my family it some of it took the the shape and form of um this sort of perfectionistic drive. Um, I have one older brother who's two and a half years older than me. Um, and, uh, and he was able to really kind of like play the game where academically he was able to just be like, okay, I'm going to do great. Cause my parents were both coming from, um, uh, working class families, um, and, saw like education as the key Mm. to a secure and bright future. And so that was very much their focus. Your brother bought in and maybe you didn't. I never did from first grade. I was just like, why do I have to do homework? Mm. I would ask my teachers if I can get an A on your test, why do I have to do my homework? Mm. And they'd be like, well, because you know, it's to help you. And I was like, but if you're telling me that, This test is the measure of how well I know this material. Then I've demonstrated that I know it. And I can get an A on your yeah. test because that's the measure that you have made. Then I, then you have to tell me why you I You probably have to do weren't that. articulating it that well in the first grade, but we get your point. Yeah. But I probably, I mean, <laughs> I was pretty precocious. I was pretty precocious. So, I mean, I, I really, I, I really might have. <laughs> um, and, and my whole life was kind of like that. Mm. I always, my earliest memories are feeling like the black sheep in my family. Mm. And so, and love, now whether this is real or just my experience, um, but I always felt that it was very much like a meritocracy, this like, and, and I was outside of like being able to like participate in the meritocracy of my family. And so it made me feel a disconnection from, from my family. And so you're searching for a family or, or a place yes. to belong. Yes. And so when I was a kid, uh, I, I was involved in a lot of athletics and a lot of sports. I was a gymnast. I quit gymnastics when I was 11. Um, and I was going 20 hours a week when I quit. Mm. So like, I, mean, I was like really committed. But I also was like a diver and a swimmer and I played soccer and softball. And so I think I found a lot of meaning through that. When we moved, we moved from there um, to rural Michigan when I was 11. So I was like right at the sweet spot for it to be really hard for me. And so we moved and it was like all the, all of those kids had all lived there their whole lives. So it was very difficult for me to make meaningful friendships. And I did make some, and some of those people continue to be my friends um, through today. But, um, but it, it, it didn't have that same sense of like, you know, they, when I moved there, I, I had, I was like in a breakdancing group when I was when I was a kid and I listened to all this, you know, all this like breakdance music and I had a Philadelphia accent and you know and like and these kids in rural Michigan are like, "Where are you from? Are you from England?" Like they were like they didn't know what to make of me. Um and so again, like I feel just like this outlier. As I go into middle school, um, I got really into like the Beatles and the 60s culture. And that's really the first 
um, the first kind of draw away from mainstream culture for me that I sort of veer off to the left and am really interested in that sort of like counterculture. Um, and then as I got uh, a little bit older, um, I hung out with a bunch of skateboarders and there's, you know, and that again, like that's this sort of like subculture and mm-hmm. like counterculture. And, um, and then from there, um, that led into listening to like punk rock music and then going to see punk rock shows and listening, you know, being around this counterculture and understanding the, that, um, appearance has power. And I liked the power that, um, uh, that the appearance of, um, you know, of like having my hair cut really, you know, like I had like taken kitchen shears to like half of my head while I was at my grandmother's house. (laughs) She was like, Oh my gosh. But for me, I liked that it had that power. Like I felt like that it was a tool for me to be able to discern where people were coming from and their intentions towards me. And I, I recognized immediately that the way I looked had particular, a particular set of power that went along with it. Um, and then, so this was all happening up until uh, like I was 14. So I was a, a freshman in high school. I finished out my freshman year. Part of the deepening of my sense of not having really like a group identity and a place that I belonged. Um, I went to school in, I went to high school in Toledo. And when um, the, the rules back then, I don't know if they're still this way. If you lived out of state, you couldn't play high school sports. Mm. A lot of that was like were rules because yeah. of football, like down in sure. they would recruit people mm. from Kentucky to come sure. to come play. And so for me, like I, I had played sports my whole life. And so having that removed, like I wasn't part of a team. I wasn't, you know, I did like mock you in and and stuff, but it's like it wasn't it's not, you know, yeah, I mean, it you doesn't, be like, doesn't yeah, scratch the same yeah. itch. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like go security yeah, council yeah, or you yeah. know, it doesn't have the same yeah. it doesn't really have the same sort of draw and, and community uh, feeling that being part of a team, even of an individual sport, has. So what we're doing here, and we got to hit a break here. What we're doing here is is laying the groundwork for your entry point into this white supremacist subculture. You mentioned a couple already, but those are just kind of gateway drugs, if you will, for what becomes a, a pretty significant chunk of your life. Uh, Shannon Martinez in studio with us. Uh, Shannon Martinez, a mother of seven here in Athens now. By the way, how'd you? I mean, as quickly as you can, how'd you end up in Athens after all of this? My oldest six kids. Um, they all have the same dad mm. and uh, he and I met and we're living in Annapolis, Maryland. And he, he actually grew up here. And, uh, and as the real estate market got out of control up there, he was like, well, you know, my grandmother has this house that she left my brother and I out on nowhere road. Mm. And so we packed up, we actually were supposed to move on nine 11 and um, couldn't get out of Annapolis cause all the roads were shut down. Um, and so we moved down on September 12th, wow. uh, 2001 down here. And so that is, you know, so I've been here since then. It's, it's the longest I've ever lived anywhere. So I, I claim it as home. You're home now. Uh, we, as we were hitting the break there, you into your middle school, high school years, as you're starting to find your way into that punk rock subculture up there in the Midwest, I think it's at Ohio someplace. Uh, how does that to step us through the journey and move the story along? How does that become skinhead white supremacist? Sure. Um, and then at, just my birthday's in June and just shy a couple weeks shy of my 15th birthday I went to a party um I told my parents I was sleeping over somebody's house and then we I, they dropped me off there and then we went to uh, a party that another friend of ours was having out in the middle of nowhere with at this horse farm and um 
and I was drinking and uh, and I ended up uh, being sexually assaulted by two men and that was like how I lost my virginity um, mm. and um, and the way that I dealt with it in the immediate was just sort of matter of factly I woke up the next morning I saw that there was like a little bit of blood when I went to the bathroom I was like okay well I guess that happened I didn't I knew part of me really knew and subsequently I've talked to my my mom about this and was really reaffirmed that I really couldn't have told them that this happened that there was this part of me that knew that if I told them and that their response would definitely be why did you lie about where you were going you were drinking like this is you know you did this bad thing and yes those things you know aren't okay but I I knew that I wouldn't I could not take the blame no, that, my, that would become the lead when this other thing should have yeah been. when, yeah. when it, i would not be able to, to 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 take on the guilt of mm. my own sexual assault mm. um but what that meant was that i had completely unprocessed trauma so, so much so that it took me until my my oldest son was born when i was 23 and um and it took me so like almost 10 years to even use the words like, oh, I was I was raped. Mm-hmm. Like I, 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 it, I didn't frame it that way in myself at all. It took me and, and now I understand the way that the brain deals with trauma. And so I understand that that that's a very normal reaction to trauma. And a lot of the subsequent things that um, I choose to do and the way that I deal with it are very classic ways that the brain deals with unprocessed trauma. Um, but at the time, I didn't know that. And so about six months after that happened, like, I really was just feeling so angry. I had been, soon after that party, I started going out with, like, my first real boyfriend. And then he and I, um, like, started, we, we were breaking up. And, and I was okay for the, you know, because I didn't feel, like, unworthy of love and unlovable, like, while we were going out. And then when we broke up, it was like, I was left kind of, like, on my own. And I began to just really struggle with feelings of like unwor- being unworthy of love and not lovable and not worthy of connection and just being sort of consumed by anger and rage. And I didn't understand it. Um, I just I felt so angry. And I'm not talking like, you know, like there's teen angst or whatever. I mean, I just was like I just wanted to fight everybody and just was I literally felt like rage was consuming me. So in the subculture of like of the punk rock world on the periphery of that, especially at the time where I was living, it was not a real big movement yet and certainly not there, but on the periphery and a lot of the shows were the skinheads and they were the angriest people that were there. And I recognized myself in that. And I was like, they're the angriest people I know. Those are, they're my people. Like that's who I want to be with. They're the ones that want to fight. And like, and they all have each other's backs. Like if one of them gets in a fight, they're all there. I'm like, I, I want to do that. I want to be part of that because they'll, they'll have my back. (laughs) And so it began, you know, this sort of this sideways step in, um, through this like search for like a sense of belonging and a sense of belonging in a particular way for me that involved anger. And so soon I, I recognized that if I wanted to continue to like have this familial group um, that espousing the beliefs that, 
you know, that, that whites were some white heritage was something to preserve and that, um, that whites were just inherently better than non-whites and, um, that, that I would have to espouse that rhetoric in order to belong. Was that a problem for you? It, it wasn't a problem because I hated everybody. I hated myself. I hated everybody. And so being saying I hate black people, I hate Jews, I hate non-whites, it was almost it was almost a relief because it took this big unnameable anger that I felt and, and actually it made it smaller yeah. and made it so that it was something that was at least sort of tangible. Yeah. Shannon Martinez with us here. Uh, it, it's ended, leaving aside that part of it, let's, let's take the white supremacy out of the white supremacist conversation for a moment. I mean, it sounds as though that that's classic stuff. If you'd been black, you'd be in a gang someplace. Yes. If you'd been Middle Eastern, you'd be in ISIS. I mean, it, it sounds like the same dynamic at work. It is absolutely the same dynamic. Um, and you now that I, now that I'm very far removed from that and in the and and in the process of you know trying to help other people deal with their past um, or disengage from uh, their uh, current situation, that there are very common threads that run all through all extremist groups and how people end up in them. And it's this lack of identity, looking for a sense of purpose in their life. We'll get into that as we move along here. I want to talk though, about what happened once you found yourself in. I don't know if there's paperwork to fill out. Now I'm a white supremacist. You've signed the forms and you are one. What happens? I mean, what, what, is, what does it mean to suddenly be in that world? Um, what what ha- what begins to happen um, is that um, the what well, what we call it now is the echo chamber, and you, that's you know that's a buzzword right now where um, you know like online you end up w- surrounded only by people that have your same beliefs. Sure. It operates exactly the same way, except it happens you know it it in a in a physical sense that you begin to only associate with other skinheads and only associate with other people that are in you know, what what we refer to as the movement, um, that you end up living in a house where it's all, all your roommates are all skinheads or all involved in uh, the white power movement. Um, and so you get more and more isolated so that your belief system becomes more and more normalized. And so like the, it, you, you, you start to not have any um, contact with the people that you are dehumanizing and objectifying other than in this, like you, if you know, if you're a black man walking by on his way to work, say you run into him at Kroger. I mean, you know, you, you must have. Yes, but not in a meaningful, not in yeah. a way where you have a meaningful interaction yeah. with okay. them. No, you're and not, you're you not can, your coworkers and you're not having a beer after work with these folks. Right. Yeah. Because you would also end up working jobs where you, would just be around like a lot of the skinhead guys at the time, like they all worked in construction. It was mm. all white crews and it was yeah. all, you know, that they just worked, you know, hanging all, drywall all day with each other. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, you know, so it was like, again, like it's this really, it operates like a gang or like, mm. you know, almost like a cult or whatever, where it's just this very self aggrandizing. Um, and you literally can't insulate your whole life that way or most can. of it. Yes. Wow. Yeah, you you truly can, and th- and any interaction that you might have, you can come back and just be like, oh, you know, yeah. that guy at the grocery yeah. store cut me off, yeah. like you know, racial slur, racial mm-hmm. slur, you know, yeah. and they'll be like, oh, yeah. you know, that they'll so that you will uphold those beliefs, um, you know, and you almost have to because what you believe is so, you know, like, 
um, you have to kind of keep feeding it or you'll begin to be like, this is, I don't actually, like, this is not actually the core of who I am or whatever. So you like, have to you, make it the core of who you are. Yes. How long, quickly, we're just going to hit another break here and we'll come back, but how long were you, quote unquote, a skinhead white supremacist? How much of your life was consumed by this? From the time I was like 15 and I disengaged um, when I was 19. So it was mm-hmm. around four it was around four years. It was basically your high school years, yes. uh, essentially. The full hour, and I don't do that often. I don't remember the last time somebody came in here and spent an hour. Most people aren't interesting for an hour. I'm not interesting for an hour. This is fascinating. Uh, Shannon Martinez, uh, here in Athens, a mother of seven, and a and self-described, and we're getting through the life story now, uh, a period of it, uh, her teenage years mostly, a white supremacist, self-described skinhead, white supremacist, uh, and obviously not in that line of work now. But uh, we've talked about how you got into it, uh, different things that led you there, some things that were missing in your family life, your personal life, and, and these knuckleheads filling that void for you. And I talked about how that is a classic pattern, it, 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 but for circumstances, you might have been in some gang somewhere, you might have been in ISIS somewhere, if, if the circumstances were different, uh, they ended up being what they were. And now, before we talk about how you began to use your word, disengage from this and get back among the living, uh, that they I have to ask this, in terms of what you did while you were there, the four or five years you spent with these folks, uh, it seems to me if you're going to be a white supremacist, you're not really doing a good job unless you've done something illegal. I mean, did you, did you hurt anybody? Did you break anything? Uh, did you burn anything? What What were some of the more seedy things you did there? Um, we, um, we would... Uh a lot of times go out and like flyer places with, um, you know, and there have been pictures recently of different, uh, flyers that have shown up, uh, different places. And we would go put flyers underneath people's windshields on their doors in their mailboxes. Um, with, there were always fights. Sometimes there was like a, a, uh, a rival gang, so to speak, um, of, non-racist skinheads and a lot of our fights like happen with that the skinhead <laughs> movement actually like originated in jamaica mm. and then really travels i always to, thought it was european well mm. it it goes from jamaica travels to uh london travels mm. to britain mm. and is very much like a, a working class and surrounded with like music mm. and and uh like traditional ska music and northern soul music and then it gets co-opted by the british nationalists and the working mm. class and they co-opt that culture to be and Mm-hmm. And and then it jumps the ocean sure. again, at, mostly in its racist form. Mm. And there were still some like what they either refer to themselves as skinheads against racial prejudice, so like the sharps, or <laughs> traditional skinheads, or sometimes they were referred to by us as like the antis, as like the anti-racist skinheads. Mm-hmm. And they are very much the the origin that uh, the, the like skinheads against racial prejudice that's very much sort of like the origin of who like antifa is now oh, wow um and um and so uh, a lot of the people that um that used to be um white power skinheads and neo-nazi skinheads now when we when we discuss what's going on now a lot of them say you know like that they that they would have if if they had gotten to them first that they would have probably joined their group. group, yeah, and, so, yeah. But, and but they got the same tactics and the same violence, and just for a different cause. All right, uh, yeah, Shannon Martinez, because time is limited. Sure. The disengagement process. Okay, so how you got into it? How did you get out of it? When did you first of all? When, when did the light switch, if it worked that way? When did it flip and say, you know, this is not for me. This isn't me. I need to be not here. Um, at the time, um, I, my after we lived in in Michigan, just north of Ohio, my parents moved to Augusta. 
I'm from Augusta. I ebbed and flowed and I would be there and then I would leave. I would go um, live in different places with skinheads and then I was underage and so they would have to report me as a runaway and then I would end up having, you know, I'd get picked up by the police or whatever and I would end up back home. And, uh, and finally, I was of the age of major and I left, um, actually, <laughs> touching on your last question, um, I left with some friends um, to go run some guns to Texas <laughs> um, because I was like some of the funding, some of the ways that they would fund. And that yeah, was, okay, those that's were, illegal. Yeah, those okay. were like connections to uh, like the clan and stuff like that that was going on. And I was not super involved in that. I just wanted to like go on a road trip, Something to do. Okay. <laughs> but it was okay with me that that's, yeah. you know, it, that in the world that I was living in, it was like, well, sure we can go fund that by selling mm-hmm. some guns in Texas. Um, and so, um, the guy that I was going out with, um, at the time was in the army. It's Augusta. There's such a constant influx. Um, there's a huge, there's a huge, uh, skinhead presence and white nationalist presence within the, the military at the time. And, and even, wow. even to this okay. day, like that there's a, that there's heavy recruitment. Um, you can, you can probably guess like a lot of the overlaps and, you know, people are stripped of their identity and they're away from home and there's power struggles within the group and it's most easily divided along racial well, see, lines. That, that is so counterintuitive to me to think of that in a military setting because you and I are in Afghanistan, the bad guys are over there shooting at us. What do I care what color you are? I, I don't understand that. I don't know how that dynamic can play in the military. Um, it's again it's a lot of the military a lot of the 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 lot a lot especially coming out of fort gordon and you know because it's training it's people that are just entering into the military and the military has changed a little bit because um of the lack of funding um but it's young people it's a lot of times it's young people whose lives are not going as great as they wanted there are probably not many 55 year old skinheads running around out there that's that's a good point all right because i took us on a different path so anyway so i go to houston my parents are like you cannot come home and um the guy that i was going out with his mom uh lived in houston um and she knowing that i was a skinhead knowing that he was she was like well you can come live with me because i didn't have anywhere to go um at that point and um and so and maintaining that relationship with him was the most important thing to me um and he still had to finish up like his training for the reserves um, in Augusta. And so I ended up going to Houston and living with his mom and his little brothers. And, um, she took me in and she showed me compassion when I did not deserve any. Um, and she let me be part of their family and, um, let me tag along to take her younger sons to Cub Scouts. And, and you go, were still in, in costume, shall shaved, we yes, say. Yeah. I'm still shaved head <laughs> and in, you know, boots and, and, you know, I mean, I still look angry and militaristic and you know i mean a lot of the dress moved to like uh bdus and stuff because you know it's like you look at pictures and you're like they look like terrorists and it's like yeah. well that's what well, that's you were, essentially. what, what yeah. we were yeah you know we and were, she's like can you pick up the kid from daycare uh, sort of yeah. yeah like i mean and i like i mean she it was okay like i got to read the the little boys uh the chronicles of narnia as a bedtime story <laughs> and we would go fishing and camping but the transformation that's happening is like I'm taken into this family with open arms and like we're doing regular people stuff that I hadn't done in a really long time. And so it was kind of like, like you referred to it earlier as the land of the living. And it's, it was really like that Mm. where it's like, Oh, okay. This is what people do when they're not out, you know, like 
causing fights mm. and, you know, looking for trouble and going to clan rallies. Like people go fishing <laughs> and they go camping and they cook out and work on the roof <laughs> together as a family. And, you know, like, and so it's this slow return. And because I had just moved to Houston, I wasn't, I, I, I didn't have a car. I, I wasn't um, geographically. Like I said, it was always like you were in a house with a bunch of other skinheads. And so like the the echo chamber had like a big gap in it. And for me, um, it it was not – these were not the core ideals of who I was. I didn't grow up in an overtly racist household. Um, I didn't grow up with like parents who were part of the clan or whatever. And so – as this love that this woman is pouring out on me and she starts talking to me about plans for going to college and, um, you know, and she's like, well, why don't you go, why don't you study and go take your SATs? And she helped me dream dreams for myself that I hadn't dreamed in a long time. Like I didn't see my life as having any value and I didn't see myself as having any personal future. I always was like, okay, well within the like white power movement, I, my life has meaning and my life has value. And, as you know, someone who can help further the movement, I thought of future that way. It's and she helped bring that back extrinsic in. Extrinsic value as opposed to intrinsic worth. Exact, exactly. That is, that is such an amazing way to put it. And so, you know, so she actually took me to go take my SATs at, to sit in, at Rice University and go take my SATs and encourage me to like take my GED and try to pursue like going to college and you know, and just, and I had always loved books and not always, but since I had been like a, around 12 or 13, I loved books and I loved reading and I loved the exchange of ideas and, you know, and, and she reminded me of all of that mm-hmm. and that, that, you know, and to pursue and encouraged me to pursue that. Again, we're, we're really up against it. You're going to ask this and we got to take Sorry. a quick break here. Did... I'm thinking of it like trying to leave the mafia, right? Like they don't have this retirement plan. Was it that hard to get out of it or did you just walk away from it? Because I was not deeply embedded in the the skinhead culture within Houston and I was living with this family. Like I knew the skinheads and we would hang out every now and then. Physically getting away was not that difficult. Emotionally leaving ended up being extremely difficult. That'll be where we pick it up when we come back. And we'll talk about what you're doing today. Shannon Martinez, we should have booked two hours for this. Uh, Shannon Martinez, she's not hiding from her past. You're a skinhead white supremacist. All those people we're seeing running around doing goofy things now, she was one of them uh, some years ago. Isn't now, and she's telling us her story. Uh, I was listening, and we're getting down to the short rows in terms of time we have left here. Uh, A couple of things. I was listening as you began to describe uh, your way out of this lifestyle. Uh, and the caveat here is that you can feel free to tell me this is none of my damn business and, and we'll move on. But there's a couple, of things that, that <laughs> a couple of things that really jumped out at me as I was listening to you tell the story of that woman out in Houston who you didn't use the word. The word I would use as a Christian is grace, which is what she extended. She said, I didn't deserve this. She extended it. That's grace. Faith play a, play a part in any of this? Um, not at, not at the time. Um, and when I had my oldest son and trying to, uh, find my way out, uh, like out of, I, when I had him, I didn't, I had never even changed a diaper. And so for me, a lot of the healing that I had to undergo after I had him when I was 23, that I really found a lot of, um, solace and guidance and understanding of uh, sacrifice for the good of another in a 
positive way um, through uh, being a Christian. I, I don't identify as a Christian now, um, but um, at the time it was very formative. And I feel like it has informed my moral life in an unbreakable way. Uh, the other part of that, and again, not, none of my business here. We're starting to get really personal now. Uh, right. Seven children. Uh, it means you've, at some point, will have the opportunity to tell this story seven times. Well, they is- all know. They've all grown up um, knowing it, and I actually have two babies that I gave up for adoption. Mm. Um, and so I have a lot of like this is. The, I'm always like this isn't even the most interesting part of my story. It just happens to be relevant today. Um, the the part about being a skinhead, and so I've always grown up. Um, I've always talked to them about everything and never kept my past or my mistakes or whatever from my kids. They've grown up their whole lives knowing, you know, that they have two half siblings out there that may come and try to find mm-hmm. them someday or, you know, these things about me because I never wanted it to be a place where they were like, what are these things that we're hearing about you? I always wanted it always to be on the surface. And, you know, I'm just kind of like, I want you to know you'll never be outside of my love. Mm-hmm. Like when I say unconditional, like you would have to do something really, really bad to do something <laughs> worse than being a neo-Nazi white power skinhead. Like you can mess up yeah. pretty big yeah. and like all you can just be like, yeah, well, mom, I'm not a skinhead, you know? Yeah, and I would yeah. be like, okay, you're right. Like, <laughs> okay. And so letting them know like, yeah. hey, and uh, that grace started with her. And I think, I think she, I, I don't think she, she didn't go to church um, regularly, but I know that she was a, a believer and I, you know, and, and a lot of it was, um, her, her oldest son that I was dating at one point in his teenage years was really struggling. Um, she was a single mom and one of his friend's moms kind of took him in. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that that was, you know, that she wanted to extend that grace to me. And that, that's what I try to do for my children's so friends. The, the phrase I think they use now is pay it forward. And it goes, yes. It was not even a thing that it's yeah, so long ago uh, now that that wasn't even a phrase. The, uh, we see what's going on around us now. And, and you've got these kids. I mean, the oldest is 20 and that's still very much a kid. Obviously uh, you've got to be, I would think as a parent, all parents, but especially, especially you, you got, you got to be that parent is it because you know what to look for and you, you got to be watching your kids and say, okay, don't go down that road. How do you do that as a parent? Um, I think. And what do you say to other parents? One of the things that I think is crucial is to talk. Um, a lot of times people, especially with small children, want to shelter their children from what's going on. But just like um, those of us who grew up watching Bugs Bunny, um, lots of the jokes just went over our heads as kids that now when we look at them, we're like, oh, oh, <laughs> this is, you know, I get that now. I didn't get that then. The same is true when you're talking to your children about current events or things that are happening, that their brains will block out the parts that they don't understand or that are too complex for them to understand. But parents often shy away because they don't want to upset their kids or, you know, they don't want them to feel unsafe. However, I believe strongly that if you talk about everything, um, that it makes it okay to talk about and you develop a culture in your family where your children feel safe to come and talk to you about complex issues, not only in the world, but in their personal lives. Um, and so to not shield them from what's going on and just muddle your way through it. It doesn't, you don't have to be perfect at it. It's okay to not know what to say, but not talking about it is the worst thing that you could possibly do. And to like build a culture of connection within your family. If your kids are acting badly and you, you know, and they're, what they're really saying to you is I need to be connected with you. That to me, like, that's what like 
behavior, which is no, dubbed as bad. Saying, it's just, and his to way build of saying, that connection. The kid's way of saying, I want boundaries. Please set some. Absolutely. Absolutely. And they will respect those boundaries if you are if you have a culture of connection within your family um, rather than like go to your room. Mm-hmm. Like, you just be like, hey, we don't talk to each other that way. This is not acceptable. We don't talk to each other this way. Let's go take a walk. And there are there ways, Shannon Martinez, again, things parents ought to look for. Okay, we're, we're always told, well, here's what to look for if you're worried about your kid smoking pot. Or here's what to look for if you're worried about your kid doing X, Y, or Z. What do I look for if I'm worried about my kid maybe trending toward skinheadedness? Um, I think um, a lot of it would be a sense of isolation. Um, that if you notice that your child is having trouble making uh, group connections within school or like, if, you know, especially if they're, they're uh, veering out towards the edges of like the mainstream to just kind of keep an eye on that. Sometimes that can be a very positive thing. Mm. Um, and it can be a great place for, for people to flourish that don't feel like they fit in the yeah, mainstream. Sometimes the cool kids table is not the best place to be. Yes. Sometimes it's the worst place to be. <laughs> um, I think too, like watching, watching for signs of anger and rage. Like there is, you know, I mean, all 14 year, I mean, I'm on like, I'm going to have three teenagers in my house for the next decade. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I get <laughs> like, you want to rethink that being a Christian thing. I mean, get, back, get back into that. Yeah. So, so like, it, there's a difference between like teen angst and like 14 year old smart aleckness yeah. that is just part of their brain development where they want to argue with everything because that's what their brain is doing right now and being angry. Mm. And I would, that to me is a very, very crucial sign also for any kind of self harm um, because all, all of those are indicators of like some kind of personal, either real or perceived trauma. And by self-harm, I mean like cutting Mm. or burning or taking up, you know, smoking Mm. or drinking or any of those things are are signs like, hey, we need to like talk about what's going on in your life and to, you know, like to butt in because they'll and they'll be mad at you and everything right now. And they might leave. Like, Mm. I mean, I just kept leaving home and I'm always very cognizant of that. But I try to tell my kids, hey, I have all of my frontal lobe. And I've messed up in ways that you have not even begun to even conceive of messing up. <laughs> so, like, use me as a resource. Yeah. Let me, like, use me. And I will tell you some of the potential consequences to the things you're thinking about doing so that you can make an informed decision. Yeah, like less than a minute. Have you thought about it? And maybe you have. Have you written a book? Have you thought about it? I mean, you're only raising seven kids. You got time. Well, like for raising kids, I was like, I don't know how it turns out yet. Like they might all be terrible. <laughs> how can I speak with authority on that? But now that they're getting older, possibly, um, I, I would love to write. I've written my whole life. But back to the having seven kids, it's like, well, how do you write a book with a two-year-old yeah, yeah. <laughs> in your house just yeah, trying exactly. to get answer email? And he's yeah. like, I'm not answering the as yeah. I type yeah. random letters yeah. in. And so I would love to. It's just a matter of creating that time and space. And like, I mean, I still have a job. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great story. And more to the point, it's an important story. And you're, you're in the best position of all to tell it. And it seems like you would tell it well, as you did here this morning. It's fascinating stuff. Uh, Shannon Martinez, uh, she's on Facebook and Twitter, the yes. other places you do all that stuff as well. Do you got any kind of special website or anything? Uh, I don't at this point. Probably within the near future, hmm. just um, because there are people who are reaching out to me asking for help and perspective. This, 